The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for the opportunity as a body of believers to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation to do so. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has preserved these scriptures over uh, 4,000 years so that we might have your word to illuminate our lives. We thank you for your constant and continuous work in illuminating our minds to the truth to doctrine. And Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that as we learn these things, they are sufficient for every area of our life, every situation in our life, and that by learning your word and applying it, we can grow to spiritual maturity. We thank you for your grace, that it is unearned and undeserved, and you continue to shower us with manifold blessings. Now, as we look into your word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand these things, make them clear to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 1. As we continue our study in Galatians, I want to pick up the context a little bit and read verses 11 through 17. We might get that far today, I don't know. Beginning in Galatians 1.11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was proclaimed by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles prior to me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus." Okay, where are we in Galatians? It's important to orient, to get oriented every now and then to the flow of the discussion. Roman numeral 1. The first ten verses of chapter 1 is the introduction. The introduction has two sections. The salutation in verses 1 through 5 where the Apostle Paul very abruptly focuses on the issue which is the gospel and his own authority. In the very first verse, he emphasizes his own apostolic authority, which had become an issue in Galatia. And then in verses 6 through 10, we see his absolute amazement at their desertion of the grace of God and their distortion of the gospel. The background on this is that there were a group of Jews who were called Judaizers, who were infiltrating the church and were a problem to Paul throughout his 
his ministry in Asia Minor. And they were teaching a number of things. One thing that they taught was a direct challenge to Paul's authority. They challenged his authority, said he was not related uh, to the uh, apostles in Jerusalem and therefore had no authority to teach uh, Christianity. Uh, Secondly, they said that uh, salvation was by faith in Christ plus the observance of aspects of the Mosaic Law. So it was a faith works system for salvation. And then they taught that there had to be obedience to the law in order to grow spiritually. And this is the basic outline of Galatians. Paul is going to establish his authority to proclaim the gospel in the rest of this chapter. In chapter 2, chapters 3 and 4, he uh, explains the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And then in the last two chapters, he is going to deal with principles related to spiritual growth and spirituality. Last week, we began in verse 11. And we see that this opens up the second division of the book where Paul establishes his credentials. He is going to demonstrate that he has the authority to uh, say what he says. And this is covered in verses uh, from 111 through 221. And we examined the whole doctrine of authority orientation last Sunday morning and how vital it is to be oriented to authority. And we related that to the doctrine of the Trinity that even within the Trinity, where there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are one in essence, so they are said to be co-equal. They are co-eternal and co-infinite. They have identical essence, which means that they are equal and yet they have different roles, and there is a distinction made in the Scriptures between their roles and the submission of the Son to the Father and the Holy Spirit to the Son and the Father, which shows that the concept of submission and the concept of respect and obedience to authority do not have anything to do with the concept of equality. They're two different concepts. And it's just amazing how front pages of the newspaper in the last week have demonstrated how our culture has lost concept of this with this um, proposal or amendment to the uh, Southern Baptist uh, faith and message, which, by the way, isn't their doctrinal statement because Baptists don't have a doctrinal statement. They're very proud of the fact that they are a non-creedal people, which means you don't have to believe anything to be a Baptist. Now, most folks don't know that. Uh, but you don't have to believe anything to be a Baptist. You can, because they believe in some screwy doctrine called soul freedom, which is a real distortion of the concept of the individual priesthood of the believer. Because the believer is not free to interpret the scripture any way he wants to. That's just raw subjectivity. And that's why they get into some of the problems that uh, they get into. But that's not unique to Southern Baptists anyway. Unique to a lot of fundamentalist Christians who don't want to take the time to really study the Word of God and they get involved in a lot of human viewpoint, and, but that's another subject. Anyway, they passed this, this uh, amendment uh, which relates to what we, an illustration we used to this concept last week, and that is that their wives are to be graciously submissive to the servant leadership of their husband. Of course, there have been 
various letters to editors written, various newspapers throughout the country, and there was even a segment, I think, on one of the nightly news channels the other night, and people were uh, voicing their reaction to this. And if you listen carefully to what, what all of these reactions are, there's one thing in common. They all say, well, I don't know why uh, women should be submissive to their husbands because they're equal. And see, what, what has happened is that this is a logical fallacy. It's confusing two different categories and making them synonymous. Now, the issue is that, that there are distinct roles assigned in Scripture. The role assigned to men is that they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which is an incredibly high standard for the husband. He is to make that his priority, to love his wife as his own body, to love his wife just as Christ loved the church, which means that if you as a man are going to fulfill your responsibilities as a husband, you better spend a maximum amount of time in Bible class so that you can understand something about how Christ loved the church. And then you need to implement that in terms of your relationship with your wife. Secondly, the wife has a responsibility to uh, submit to her husband. Now notice it doesn't say husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church as long as they look good, as long as they have stimulating conversation, as long as they are physically attractive. It doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church as long as they are responsive to your leadership. It doesn't say that. It's a straight command. Husbands love your wives. It doesn't matter if they're a shrew. It doesn't matter if they yell and scream at you and throw pots and pans at you. It doesn't matter if they're rebellious to doctrine. It doesn't matter what they are. The role is that you are to love your wife just as Christ loved the church. Because Scripture says that God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were madly in love seeking God, He died on the cross for us, right? That's not what it says. It says God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were in rebellion against God, shaking our fist in His face, saying the last thing in the world we want as a human race is to have a relationship with you, uh, God sent His Son to die on the cross as a substitute for us. In other words, God's love was based on who He was, His character, the virtue of, of God in his terms of His righteousness, and not on human response. So the love of a husband for the wife is not based in any way, shape, or form on how they respond, on their character, on how they act. That's conditional love. And that has no place. If you're going to have a, a successful marriage in any way, shape, or form, then as a husband you have to get your act together and realize something about what virtue love is, that it is totally divorced from the circumstances, in any circumstances, in your wife's life. Consequently, or on the other hand, women, your role as being graciously submissive in the words of the uh, Southern Baptist document has nothing to do with the leadership or lack of leadership of the husband. Once again, it's a function of virtue love, which is unconditional. And that's always tough. I think it's a lot harder to be a responder than it is to be the initiator. I remember several years ago when I was taking a lot of dancing lessons that, that you know, one of the jokes was that women did everything on the dance floor that men do. They just do it backwards. 
And they have to continually be in a position of responding to the leadership of the male dance partner. And they can't back lead. It was very difficult to dance with. I always could tell when I was dancing with a woman in class who was a, a strong feminist type because they wanted to do what was called back leading. In other words, they had their agenda as to what they wanted to do and they would try to uh, do it or get the man to lead them to do that whether than just relaxing and let the man lead. Because in any organization, one person has to lead and one person has to follow and that's just a principle of organization and corporate organization and has nothing to do whatsoever with whether or not in the illustration of dancing, whether or not the man's a better dancer than the woman. I mean, it's whether or not you're going to be able to accomplish the goal. And many times the man might be a much worse dancer than the lady he's dancing with, but nevertheless she has to follow his leadership. Otherwise, you have two people wanting to do two different things and it just all falls apart. But ultimately, I thought that was an interesting illustration right off the front page of the newspaper this week of what we've been talking about in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity and how it establishes for us this basic principle that submission and equality have nothing to do with uh, the, the, uh, the, the impact of sin in the world. They go back to the na- very nature of God in terms of his ontology, which has to do with the basic being of God, the science of the being or essence of God, and because of that, we can see the implication that in the human realm, uh, equality and submission are not mutually exclusive terms. So you can treat people as complete equals and yet recognize role distinctions without it being something abusive. It only becomes abusive and destructive when the sin nature takes over and arrogance controls and dominates. And, of course, that is typical in a situation where you don't have believers involved, but where there are believers involved, we're held to a higher standard, uh, the standard that's explained there in Ephesians chapter 5. So, when we get into the whole issue underlying Paul's discussion in verses 11 down through the end of chapter 2, what underlies it is the doctrine of, of authority orientation and how vital it is for everybody to be authority oriented. That's fundamental to success in any endeavor in life, whether it's in an establishment realm or in a spiritual realm. But he's establishing his authority, and he starts off by saying, for I want you to know this principle. And he begins with the Greek word norizo. G-N-O-R-I-Z-O. And this has to do with, I want to make something known to you. And the best way to translate this, I think, would say, I want you to know this principle, fellow believers, colon. The gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Paul is going to establish a proposition here that he's going to defend in the remaining verses of this chapter and the next. And that is that because he got the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, this establishes his authority to explain the gospel and to be an apostle. So this is a proposition that he is going to uh, establish and then defend. He's going to establish his credentials. It's very important sometimes to establish your credentials. 
So the point is, the gospel which was preached or proclaimed by me, I like the word proclaim. People have all kinds of misconceptions of what preaching is. Uh, preaching often in the, in the Greek is kerugma, And it has to do with a proclamation. A kerux, who was a herald, was someone who was the sort of the public address system of the ancient world. They didn't have uh, too many newspapers or electronic media like radio or anything like that. So when the government had to make a proclamation or an announcement that everybody needed to be aware of, they would send this herald, this kerux out, and he would walk up and down the streets and he would make the announcement. He wouldn't stop for questions. He wouldn't stop to be evaluated. He just walked through the streets and made the announcement. That's all that was needed to do. And usually what we find, not, though not always, but usually when the Bible talks about the, the uh, kerugma or keruso, which is the verb, the object of that is almost consistently the gospel. And this has a lot of implications for witnessing. Explain the gospel. Make it clear to your hearers but you don't have to answer every question they come up with. You always have to, and it only comes through experience, you always have to discern whether the person you're witnessing to is just throwing questions up for the sake of throwing up questions or whether they're honest issues. But for the most part, many of the issues that unbelievers raise in the process of, of your witnessing to them uh, involve answers that they do not have the spiritual uh, the spiritual tools to handle yet. Scripture says for the natural man, that is the soulish man, man is trichotomous. He has a body. He has a soul. And if you are a believer, you have a human spirit. Now the word in the Greek for soul is pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. And the word there for nat translated natural man, which is a lousy translation, is that the soulish man, the pneumaticos man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. And there it's relating to the Holy, the, I mean, the human spirit. Man, as, a, un, as unsaved, does not have the tools, the human spirit necessary for understanding spiritual truth. Well, then, you ask, how can the unbeliever understand the gospel? It operates like this. You have an evangelist out here or someone operating in the role of an evangelist, and they're witnessing and explaining the gospel. They present the gospel to the unsaved, and the Holy Spirit functions as a human spirit to that unbeliever to make the gospel clear. And the Holy Spirit often will in the process of witnessing, take the, the stuff that's wrong out of the way. I mean, I'm amazed at how many people can sit under someone who is proclaiming either an erroneous gospel or a very distorted gospel or a very unclear gospel, and yet they hear the gospel. They don't hear everything else, but they hear the truth and they respond to the truth. So it's the Holy Spirit who operates in place of a human spirit in the unbeliever to make the gospel lucid and perspicuous, at which time it is transferred down into the uh, left lobe of the soul called the mind. In the Greek, it's the noose, and this is where it becomes gnosis or academic truth. And then when it is accepted by faith, 
it is transferred into the right lobe of the soul, which is called the heart, or cardia, the, the right lobe of the mentality of the soul. And this is at this point, the unbeliever, when he has expressed faith alone in Christ alone, then God, the Holy Spirit, creates in him and imparts to him at that moment Simultaneously, he creates and imparts a human spirit to him. And then he has the ability to understand all of these other doctrines. But when you're witnessing to somebody, don't get distracted by a lot of issues and don't try to argue a lot of things that this person just doesn't have the capacity to understand. That's a major mistake that a lot of uh, people get involved in. And before long, they're involved in a, in a detailed argument about a lot of non-consequential issues at least non-consequential in terms of witness, in terms of witnessing is concerned, and then you know they've just got a problem on their hands, and it's ended up becoming an ego contest and a headbutting contest. So when you're witnessing, keep the issue on the gospel. Paul says that he's proclaiming the gospel, and it is not from the source of man. And then he says in verse 12, he introduces this in the Greek with the Greek word gar. G-A-R, which is going to explain his, his statement in verse 11 because he says it was this, this um, proposition, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man because, now he's going to explain what he means by not according to man. It's not according to human viewpoint. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now he begins by saying, that this gospel, at the end of verse 11, is not according to man. Now, this is an idiom. This is where we stopped last Sunday, if you remember. We had a little battery problem, so we stopped here. That this is not according to man. And this has to do with something that is uh, not agreeable with or not in line with the standard of human thinking or human viewpoint. This is, this is the statement that he's making. By way of application, I want to make three important observations. First of all, the gospel is a unique message proclaimed a unique way. The gospel is a unique message proclaimed a unique way. Do not denigrate the gospel or insult God by reducing the gospel to merchandise being sold in the streets. Unfortunately, that's what's happening today in most churches and across the airwaves of the radio and television. They are adopting methods for proclaiming the gospel and methods for evangelism that have more to do with Madison Avenue and less to do with dependence upon the power of God and the Holy Spirit. Do not reduce the Scriptures to common commerce. You're not out there to sell it. The techniques that you use to proclaim the gospel, the techniques for evangelism and witnessing, are not the techniques of salesmanship. So don't reduce evangelism to salesmanship methodology. That's very common, a very common error today. So the gospel is a unique message that's proclaimed a unique way. Secondly, evangelism is not to be conducted according to the principles of sociology. This is very common today. We fought three battles that the evangelical church has lost, basically, in the last century. And they all flow from science or pseudoscience. The first has to do with the battle of evolution. What the Scriptures clearly teach in contrast to evolution is that God uh, created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. 
And God did this, at least the recreation, restoration, in six literal 24-hour days in Genesis chapter 1. The second battle we've lost has to do with psychology. Psychology claims to be authoritative for all matters related to the health of the soul. The Bible claims to have that as its exclusive domain. The Bible addresses it from the framework of the authority of God who created the human soul and knows what is best for it. And psychology operates on principles of empiricism, and more often than not, they're wrong. There's uh, three or four hundred different models of psychology and a thousand or more different techniques, and they are, in many cases, mutually exclusive. So it's the blind leading the blind. The third area that we're fighting right now is in the area of sociology. Let's go out and take surveys. Let's understand the principles of how, how society and a culture operate, and then we're going to use those principles in order to develop our methods for planting churches, starting churches, witnessing, and evangelism. And this is very common today in what's called the church growth movement. Church growth movement has its roots in Fuller Seminary in Southern California, but it's exploded literally exploded in the last 10 to 15 years. And I know of very, very few uh, churches and pastors who are not caught up in one degree or another and have not been influenced in one degree or another with this whole concept of sociology. One very famous church in, in uh, Chicago has become the model for everybody in following this. And what, they, what the pastor of that church did was he went out, and it's now the largest church in the, in the world, and this was in the early 80s. He went out into the neighborhoods, and he surveyed everybody. And he asked them if they went to church anywhere. And if they didn't, that's what the kind of person he was looking for, so he wanted to know why they didn't go to church. And he listed all the reasons, all the things that made them uncomfortable, singing songs they weren't familiar with, singing a type of hymn, singing traditional hymns, that uh, seemed to be very, as far as they were concerned, very much divorced from the kind of music they listened to every day. So they had no appreciation for that style of music or the content of the hymns and a number of other things that he discovered as a result of his surveys. So then he designed his church service on the basis of what he discovered in those surveys so that what they did in church on Sunday morning would be acceptable to a lot of unchurched people. Now, what's wrong with this picture? It got a lot of people there got a lot of people exposed to the gospel. But remember, the end does not justify the means. Just because you get people there and, you, and some people get saved doesn't justify how. Because in the process, you water down and you destroy the impact of the gospel message. And you end up building churches that are pleasing to either baby believers who are spiritually ignorant at best, or unbelievers who don't have a clue about spiritual absolutes at worst. So you construct and build churches and you construct your worship service and you design your priorities of your service and everything that you're doing, not on the basis of the absolutes of God's Word, but on what unbelievers and baby believers tell you they want. That's comparable to electing a school board that then goes out and surveys all the four- and five-year-olds in the school district and says, what do you want to do when you go to school? And then designing the curriculum in the public schools on the basis of what all the four- and five-year-olds told them they wanted to do. Now, would anybody want a school system run like that? No. But that's how they want their churches run. And that's what's dominating the literature today. And it's what's dominating the church scene today. 
And that is the context out of which this whole contemporary worship service has, has grown. And you'll find that, that if you haven't noticed that today, you'll drive up and down. I've seen it at three or four churches in the neighborhood here, and they advertise Sunday night contemporary worship service. And uh, here and there. And this is, the, this is what this comes from. It's let's create a style of music and all of this L, uh, other stuff that appeals to people today who have no concept of what truth is. Instead of starting from a position of strength and absolutes in the Scripture, you go out and you decide what all the ignorant people really think, think they want in their ignorance, and you try to appeal to that. And that is false. And you've compromised the gospel, and you've compromised the word of God, and you're operating on human viewpoint salesmanship techniques. You're no different from Burger King or McDonald's or anybody else, and the ultimate result of that is you're going to so water down and dilute the message. In fact, one man, who's not particularly a conservative or fundamentalist, wrote an extensive Ph.D. dissertation in analyzing what went on in this particular church in in Chicago that's become the model for this. Uh, as I said, it's now the largest church in the United States. It has something like 15,000 people show up. Their parking lot, which they designate for visitors only on Sunday morning, is larger and, and holds more cars than most churches parking, church parking lots hold. And that's just for their visitors on Sunday morning. But this guy did an analysis, and he said now this church has almost 300 staff members. Almost 300 staff members. Want to take a crack at how many of them have a theological degree? None. They're afraid of people who have a theological degree. In fact, this guy made the observation that of all these staff members, that between them, they did not own one standard systematic theology. They don't want theology. They want experience. And experience emotionalism and subjectivity is what's driving America today and it's what's driving many churches today. And that's not going to get you anywhere in the spiritual life. So the evangelism is not to be conducted according to the principles of sociology. And then the third observation I want to make about the uniqueness of the gospel is that evangelism is not manipulation. Evangelism is not Manipulation. Let me give you a little historical background on this. There was a man in the early part of the last century by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. And I lay at Finney's feet the responsibility for much of the error and heresy that's going on in America today. Now, the sad thing about Finney is that many evangelicals think that Finney was a wonderful, wonderful Bible teacher and wonderful man. But Finney did not believe in universal sin. I'll just put U.S. up there for universal sin. He thought that everybody was born with the same basic capacity for good and evil as Adam. They weren't tainted at all by Adam's original sin. They were just, each person was born pure as the driven snow. Secondly, he did not believe that Christ's death on the cross was substitutionary. Substitutionary, we mean that Jesus Christ died in our place. He took on His own body on the cross our punishment so that we would not have to. The Scriptures are very clear. They use a preposition, huper, which is a Greek preposition for substitution. We find it in our very passage here uh, back in 1.4. Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins. That word for is a translation of huper. 
who gave himself as a substitute for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. So Finney believed in something called the moral influence view, that Jesus was just a good example and by his influence we would be willing to dedicate our lives to what we believed in just as he did. Third, he was what was known, what's known as a post-millennialist. Now this is a fancy, fancy word meaning that he believes that Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the millennium. Millennium comes from the Latin word milli, meaning a thousand. Scriptures speak about the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus would come back at the end of that period. So who then ushers in the millennium? We do. So that means that man... The implications of this is that the human being, you know, the fact that he doesn't have universal sin... And he's a post-millennialist. He was a perfectionist. That man is perfectible and society is perfectible. Now, the way that affected his evangelism was he said that the basic problem with man is not that he's a sinner. It's just that he really isn't motivated to come to, to, to God. So we have to motivate him to come to God. Well, what can we do to motivate him? Well, at the end of a church service, let's have an altar call. Okay? Finney invented the altar call. Finney invented the use of singing hymns at the end of the service while you're having the altar call. That if you do this long enough, people will be emotionally convinced and they will come forward as a sign that they're turning to God. Because the problem isn't sin, it's that they just aren't properly motivated. So if they're not properly motivated, then the solution is you manipulate them so that they will be properly motivated. So Finney introduced into American Christianity a whole host of procedures and methods for evangelism designed to get people to to make these external professions of faith. Evangelism is not manipulation. Aside from this is don't pray for God to save people. God won't answer your prayer. The reason is God respects the fact that He's created every human being with volition. People can either reject the gospel and be negative, or they can be positive and accept the gospel. Now, you can pray that God would make the gospel clear to that person. You can pray that God will bring somebody into the life of that person who would make the gospel clear to them. You can pray that God would put enough pressure on that person's life that it would uh, put them in a position where they would be uh, more receptive to the gospel. But God's not going to reach down inside that person and switch them over to positive and make them believe the gospel. God is going to respect their individual freedom and their, uh, their individual volition. You can pray for a lot of things, but the issue is not to pray for, that God would definitely save them because God won't won't answer that prayer. Three observations. Keep the gospel pure. Don't water it down. Don't dilute it. Verse 12, Paul says, Because I did not receive it, that is, the gospel from man. This is para plus anthropos. Para plus the genitive means from the source of man. Paul says, For I neither received it from the source of man, nor was I taught it, implication, from man. But I received it, and that, is, that phrase in your English is in italics, which means it's not in the original Greek. 
he says, but I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, I got it from Jesus Christ. It was personally revealed to me from the source of, genitive of source, Jesus Christ. So this is the proposition that he is going to defend and he is going to give evidence for that he got the gospel directly from God, directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, and not from the source of men. This brings us to to the next division in our outline. So A would be that he establishes the proposition that he received the gospel from Jesus Christ, not from men. And then he is going to start giving evidence supporting his claim. So... In outline form, this would be evidence for his to support his claim that he received the gospel from Jesus Christ, not men. And the first line of evidence, and this is going to be the evidence is given in one thirteen down to uh, two twenty one. The evidence from Paul's life prior to his conversion. Paul is going to refer to the events prior to his conversion, and this is in verses um, one thirteen through. 14. Verse 13 we read, For, once again we have the Greek word gar, which introduces an explanation, For you have heard of my former manner of life. Now when would they have heard this? This was an aorist active indicative of the Greek word akuo, A-K-O-U-O, long O, akuo, which means to hear, to listen. It was reported to them, and this would have taken place during Paul's first missionary journey when he was presenting the gospel to them. During that time, he told them how he came to know Jesus Christ is his Savior. He did not refer to his experience. We will look at the whole episode in in a little while and evaluate that because it's very important for us to understand the whole concept in Scripture of testimony. Today, we've diluted the concept of testimony to some kind of personal personal subjective experience. When we sit down and witness to somebody, we talk about sharing our faith and we talk about what Jesus did for me. Well, that's not the issue. This is what we're studying in the second hour in the Gospel of John when John wrote, for these signs are... But but God gave these... Jesus Christ performed all these signs that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life through His name. It's testimony. Over and over again, John relies on objective signs, things that Jesus did which demonstrated his deity. He's going to rely on on things that Jesus said because that's objective. And he's going to rely upon seven different witnesses who are objective witnesses to who Jesus is and what he claimed to be. So all testimony is related to something that is objective and it's not subjective. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't subjective aspects. There are. But what it means is that the basis for our authority in the gospel is not the subjective, but the objective. That which is clearly discernible by one and all. What Anything that God does in private that is subjective, God is going to validate objectively. Paul says in verse 13, For you have heard, because I reported it to you in my first visit with you, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. Paul was one of the 
greatest crusaders ever in the Bible operated as part of his sin nature. Obviously, Paul had a weakness towards crusader arrogance. And what Paul thought was the right thing, even though it was wrong, he gave himself to 100%, even to the point where his goal was to try to kill as many Christians as possible in order to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. So let's look at several points to just familiarize ourselves with Paul's life prior to his conversion. Point number one, Paul was born in the town of Tarsus. Tarsus is located in the southeastern corner of Asia Minor. If we were to draw a map of modern-day Turkey, shaped something like this, and then it comes down. This is the southern sea coast along the Med. And then it moves down. The coastline moves south. Over here is Lebanon, and then Israel is down here. And Tarsus was right in this vicinity, just as the seacoast begins to go. Over here is Syria in this area, and then down here was the Roman province of Judea and Israel, and up here is the Roman province of Asia Minor. And Galatia was in this vicinity. Tarsus was a prominent town in the ancient world. It could trace its origins back for almost 2,000 years as a major trade center. During the time of Paul's birth, it was a Roman province. And from the time of 25 B.C., the Romans had united the area around Tarsus with Syria as one administrative area. So Tarsus was part of the Roman province of of Syria. It was located about 10 miles upriver from the coast along the river uh, and it was the capital of the Roman province. It has an interesting history. Caesar, Julius Caesar, visited the city in 47 B.C. And then after his assassination by, by Brutus and his cohorts in the civil war that, that resulted from that, um, and after things smoothed out, Tarsus became the home of Mark Antony. And it was there in Tarsus that Mark Antony met Cleopatra in 41 B.C. So Tarsus had quite, a, quite an illustrative history to it. It was known as a city of refined culture. And the people placed a high value on education. Now, it wasn't the kind of university town where people came from outside the area to go study there. It was a town where the people were so concerned about elevating their own understanding of culture and the arts and education and science that they studied there. The people placed a high value on education and on learning. They studied philosophy, they studied the liberal arts, and they studied the whole vast array of learning. In fact, there was a medical school there, and some people have have postulated that perhaps it was there at that medical school that Paul first met Luke, who was a physician. We don't know. That's just one of those interesting things to speculate about. But that's definitely within the realm of possibility. Now, secondly, when we talk about Paul's childhood and his background, we know that he was called, he called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. This is found in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, starting in verse, um, let me see, I guess I'll start down in verse uh, 4. We don't have, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Although I myself might have con- might have confidence even in the flesh. 
If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, if you're going to stack up your credentials in terms of the flesh, nobody could beat me. If anybody's going to get into heaven because of who they were by virtue of their birth, I would. I was circumcised the eighth day, just according to Mosaic law, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, he's not living in Israel. He's born up here in Tarsus. Now, we also know that, that, that Paul was a Roman citizen. He was born a Roman citizen, which was an incredibly prestigious position. There weren't that many people in Tarsus who were Roman citizens. So that tells us that his family was of the social elite, even though they were Jews. They were among the social elite in Tarsus and probably among the wealthiest families in Tarsus. But they maintained their connections with Jerusalem down here. The Scriptures talk about the Jews in terms of two categories in the New Testament. There were the Hellenists, who were the Jews who had assimilated to a certain degree to Greek culture to the point that they no longer spoke Hebrew or Aramaic and they weren't that familiar with their traditional um, customs in terms of their, 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 their native customs. They were still familiar with their, uh, uh, their religious customs, but they didn't live in Israel anymore, so they had assimilated a lot of the customs of the Greeks around them, including their language, and they no longer spoke uh, native Hebrew. And then there were those who were uh, proud of their relationship and maintained their connection with Israel. And when their children were born at a young age, they would send them back to, to Judea so that they would be trained in the manners and the customs of the Jews. They would be fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic, and they would be trained under the rabbis there, and they would be very familiar with all of their customs. And that was who, uh, the kind of family that Saul of Tarsus grew up in. The idea that Paul was just a tradesman or craftsman, but that does not fit everything we know about his family. For one thing, since he was born a Roman citizen, we know that either his father, his grandfather, or his great-grandfather did something of special note for the, and, and benefit for the Roman Empire. And because of the fact that Mark Antony was there and Julius Caesar was there, that there were various wars that were fought not too far from Tarsus, that it was very possible that in this family that had a firm, had a company that made tents. They owned it. They weren't the, necessarily the ones who went down and sewed all the cloth. They hired everybody to do that. They had a large uh, corporation, and they provided the, mil the tents for the military for the Roman army. And it's very possible that that's the scenario that we find, and because they did something uh, beneficial for the Roman, Roman army, that they were re rewarded with citizenship. Now, as a child in this kind of family, just as any good, good family would that owned a corporation, you want your child to grow up and take over the corporation. He needs to learn the family business from the ground up. So Saul would have been given a job at a young age working uh, with the various workers, sewing the tents, all that, learning the whole business so that when he became an adult, he could take over the business if need be. So that's part of his background and his training. But when he was still a young, young child, we know that it was probably before he was ten, the Scriptures say in, um, in, in several passages in Acts, that when he was very young, or still young, still a boy, he went to Jerusalem. He was sent there by the family, and there he was to, uh, 
to eventually be, be trained by Gamaliel, who was one of the most prominent Pharisees in the Old Testament, uh, I mean, in the, in the New Testament time and in, in Judea. Of all the famous uh, rabbis throughout all the generations, Gamaliel, who lived at about, roughly at the time of Christ and during the time of, the, uh, of Acts, was one of the most uh, prominent scholars of that era, and he was Paul's personal teacher. Fourth, we see that when Paul is first introduced to us, it's in connection with the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution that followed, and this is roughly in 35 A.D. Point number three had to do with his, his uh, uh, being sent to Israel at a young age, uh, to Judea to study, and point number four has to do with uh, his introduction with the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts uh, chapter 6. That occurs about 35 A.D. There it refers to Paul as a young man, which could be anywhere from um, 25 to 30. Most of the biographies tend to place it closer to 30. So that would mean that Paul was just a few years younger than our Lord. Now, if he goes to Jerusalem when he's a young man, let's say, I mean a young boy, 8 to 10 years of age, then that would mean that he's in Jerusalem during our Lord's ministry, during the public ministry of our Lord's life, and would be very familiar with everything that surrounded that. But he's just not mentioned at all in any of the Gospels. So we don't know. That's just a matter of speculation, but I think it's it's a fair assumption to make that Paul was present and witnessed everything that went on regarding, to the, regarding uh, the Lord and may very well have been in the crowds of the scribes and Pharisees as they were interacting and arguing with Jesus and trying to prove their points. Anyway, what we, the picture we see of him is that he is holding the robes of those who are stoning Stephen to death in Acts chapter 6. So he's very much a part of this hostility to Christianity. Point number five is after Stephen's Stephen's uh, burial, uh, Stephen's stoning, he becomes the chief persecutor uh, of the church. He instigates this intense persecution of the church, and it says in uh, Acts 8.3, he began ravaging the church. So he invaded the churches, the sanctuaries, their homes, entering house after house. He tore people from their homes, arrested them, threw them into prison, did everything he could to destroy this new movement because he sensed that it was uh, an attack on his beloved Judaism. So he was trying in many ways to impress God by his hostility to this heresy as he saw it. So he followed them away, and according to his own words in Acts 22, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So he was just one of the, before he was saved, uh, Paul was a murderer in many ways. He was a persecutor, a crusader. He hated Christianity. And in many ways, we would classify him as one of the most evil men of all of history. One thing that um, I think occurred to me recently is how many books of the Bible were written by men who were murderers. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. Saul was a murderer. And they wrote much of the Bible, which tells us something about the grace of God. And one of the things you'll always get when you're witnessing to somebody is, well, how can God save murderers? Because God saves everybody. There's, as far as God's concerned, any sin removes anyone 
from fellowship with God. We're the ones who put these, these artificial boundaries around sin and say one sin is worse than another sin. But as far as God is concerned, all sin removes us from fellowship with Him and from e- e- eternal life. Now, verse 13, we see how Paul used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And that word for destroy, he tried to wipe it out. He tried to eradicate it. He tried to decimate it. He tried to wipe it out, just completely exterminate every Christian from the face of the earth. Verse 14, he says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. He was climbing the corporate ladder of Judaism on the bodies of the Christians he murdered. That was his goal. He was going to advance no matter what it cost. He was going to make sure that everybody was impressed with his zeal and his hatred for Christianity. It goes on to say, He was more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Now, traditions can be good or traditions can be bad. The issue in traditions is never the tradition. Someone once wrote a book. I'm not sure what was in the book, but I like the title. said the, the seven last words of the church. You know what they were? We never did it that way before. <laughs> tradition is a straitjacket that can destroy you if you don't have your traditions grounded in the absolutes of doctrine. And that's what had happened with the Jews is they had made their ancestral traditions what they had added to Scripture, the absolutes, rather than Scripture itself. So in verses 13 and 14, Paul is establishing his credentials on the basis of who he was prior to his conversion. And then in verse 15, we come to point 2 under B, an evidence... from Paul's conversion. Evidence from Paul's conversion and his conduct immediately after that. And this is verses 15 through 17. And here he touches on several important doctrines. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, that's where the apostles were, to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. What's his point here? In these three verses, he's going to establish the point that his conversion was on the basis of an appearance by the Lord Jesus Christ to him on the road to Damascus. It did not come through men, but through a direct appearance by Jesus Christ, and that after that, he did not go down to Jerusalem to talk with the uh, apostles. He had no contact with them whatsoever. So what we hear, what the point he's making is that the gospel and the message he's proclaiming is one that came directly from God. So before we get into this, let's get some background and look at what happened to Paul and how he came to know the Lord as a believer. It's very dramatic. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. 
beginning in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, this is what they called Christians at this early stage, the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he wanted letters of authority so that he could go off to Damascus, which was in Syria, and arrest anybody there that was proclaiming Christ as Savior, and then arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and execution for heretics, for heresy. Verse 3, And it came about that as he journeyed, while he was on his way, he was approaching Damascus. So he's very close to Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now I want you to pay particularly close attention to the descriptions in the text. There is this bright light that flashes around him. So he is blinded by the uh, intensity of this light. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him. Now he hears this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Saul's not persecuting directly the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's persecuting believers who are the body of Christ. So if anybody does to us, they are doing the same to the Lord. Why are you persecuting me? Now Saul gets the point immediately. The self-revelation of Jesus Christ in all of his Shekinah glory means that Saul recognizes at that instant that Jesus is all he claimed to be and he is the Savior of the world. And this is indicated by his response because he says, Who are you, Lord? He uses the term Lord there to signify the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and he recognizes that. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise, enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. Now look at verse 7. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, what happens here is not subjective. I had a professor in seminary in college who tried to convince us that what happened on the road to Damascus was just a subjective religious experience on the part of the Apostle Paul. That he just uh, went into a trance and saw something and heard something and had a dream or vision but it was something that was purely subjective as all religious experience is. Well, that's fraudulent because if you're honest with what the Scripture says, while the men who were with him did not understand what Jesus said, they could not hear the specific words because it was an appearance only for the Apostle Paul, they saw the light and they heard a voice. That means something happened in space-time history that was objective and real. It wasn't something happening only inside the mind of Paul. See, that's the problem I have with all of these these uh, re- religious movies they make about Jesus and the resurrection. Is after you get to the point of the crucifixion and the burial, that when Jesus rises from the dead, you never see him physically and bodily anymore. All you hear is a disembodied voice speaking to the apostles as if there's no objective, verifiable evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. But that's contrary to Scripture. Scripture says that that not only did he appear to the disciples in bodily form, such that Thomas could feel the the nail, uh, nail scars in his hand and the sword scar in his side, but that he appeared to over 500 people at different times, which give to substantiate and document the fact that he rose from the dead. One of whom 
was the Apostle Paul. This is not just an internal experience. It is external and verifiable, and there were witnesses, even though they could not say what was said. They did see the light. They did know something happened externally to Paul, to Saul at this time, and they did hear the voice. This is what I mean. God never does anything privately or subjectively that He does not verify and substantiate objectively in the real world of space-time history. The response to that was Saul got up from the ground. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And they led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. Now, turn with me over to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Oh, let's skip Acts 22. Go to Acts 26. We're running a little short of time, so we'll just go to Acts 26. Here, Paul is giving his defense before Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. And Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Now, this is a very important word. The Greek here is apologia. The word from which we get our English word apology. But the Greek word doesn't mean apology. It's a very technical, legal word that means to present your defense, present your case. This is a very strong word. When you are a believer and you are presenting the gospel, you are to always be ready to give an answer. That's 2 Peter 3.15, I believe. And or 2.15. And there we have this same word, apa, A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A. Apologia means to give a defense, give, make a case, give objective reasons for why you believe what you believe. Don't just say, well, I believe it because it just made my life better. Because if you're doing that, you're running contrary to the methodology that's explained in Scripture. We're to give evidence. Why do you believe what you believe? It's not irrational. You don't have to put your mind in neutral. Give intelligent arguments for why you believe Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be. And this is what Paul does. Verse 2, he says, "...in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews..." I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense, apologia, before you today, especially because you're an expert in all the customs and questions about among the Jews. He knows, I'm not going to pull the wool over your eyes. I'm not going to give you a lot of religious verbiage. You've heard everything. I'm just going to explain the objective facts to you. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up. It's evident to everybody. I was well known. All of my persecution of the church, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. So he goes back to the Old Testament and says this, and he's going to relate it to the fulfillment of prophecy from hundreds of years prior to the coming of Christ. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you 
if God does raise the dead. He focuses on the resurrection. He goes on. Well, we're going to wrap this up and come back and evaluate this in a little more detail next Sunday morning. And then we'll continue our analysis of Galatians chapter 1. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. How clear it is, not only in telling us what the gospel is, but in giving us clear examples of how we are to present the gospel, how we are to give our testimony, how we are to focus the issues on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That this is not just some subjective religious experience, but there are things that happened in space-time history that are verifiable and that have been witnessed to by hundreds of witnesses such that if, if this were to come into court, as in this example in Acts 26, then it would be clear that these things are true, that they are confirmed not just by one witness, but by hundreds of witnesses. Father, help us to understand these things, that as we go throughout our lives and we witness and communicate the gospel to those in our periphery, that we may make the issues clear and that we may make the gospel clear and that the Holy Spirit would use that in bringing those who are positive to an understanding of the gospel, the faith alone in Christ alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.